Welcome back to another episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. In this episode, we are going to be talking about what it takes to be a soloist with an orchestra and have a conversation with one of our favorite local Kansas City soloists, Sean Chen. I'm Stephanie. I'm the education manager with the symphony. I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute with the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Jason Sieber, the associate conductor. So we mentioned in the very first episode of this podcast that we did a few weeks ago that we're going to talk about many things. And of course, we're going to talk about Beethoven since it it is his 250th birthday year. And I've always found it interesting that while composers before Beethoven, like Bach and Haydn and especially Mozart, those guys wrote a ton of concertos for many different instruments. But Beethoven wrote a very limited number of concertos in his lifetime. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, Stephanie. You know, he only wrote five piano concertos. Mozart, of course, wrote 20-some. He did write an amazing violin concerto, but really those are the only concertos that uh, that are actually called concertos that Beethoven wrote. And, you know, this shouldn't actually surprise us this much, I guess, because he actually wrote nine symphonies, whereas Haydn had written over 100, and Mozart, of course, had written 41. So in general, Beethoven's output was uh, far less than the composers that came before him as far as number of compositions. But I don't know what you guys think. I mean, obviously, there's the phrase, less is more. And I think that's definitely true with Beethoven, because each of those symphonies and each of those five piano concertos and, and the violin concerto are just amazing. At the uh, Kansas City Symphony, we are fortunate enough to have a whole slew of amazing soloists uh, come and visit us and perform with us. Uh, recently, we've had Yo-Yo Ma, Manuel Axe, Josh Bell, uh, Gil Shaham, Yefim Bronfman, Pinkus Zuckerman, Augustin Hedlick. Joyce DiDonato is a hometown favorite. She's from here in Kansas City. Uh, we made that incredible uh, PBS special with her uh, several years ago. But um, what I'd love to talk about for a bit is what what makes these artists, uh, the caliber of musicians that they are, of soloists, what, what are some of the intangibles that makes them the people that they are. Well, you know, that's interesting because there are so many great soloists, of course. There's so many people that aspire to be soloists and play with orchestras all the time. But those are the names, some of those names you just mentioned are the people that the whole world knows and they're performing all over the world. And to me, it's not just a matter of being, you know, truly exceptional, obviously, on your instrument or voice, but it it's that intangible quality of the what we call the it factor. You know, we're always talking about Oh, this person just has the it factor, the stage presence. The every time they walk out on stage, they just command this amazing respect and aura. And um, you know, there's when you watch someone like Yo-Yo play, or you watch someone like Joshua Bell. To me, you can't stop looking, let alone listening. I mean, they're just so engaging and so connected to the music, and they have that extra it factor that not everyone has. Yeah, one of the things that I think is really incredible, too, about uh, some of these artists uh, that that I mentioned, or, you know, Sean, who we're going to talk to in a second, um, you know, I'll, I'll get up every once in a while and play a concerto with the orchestra. It's something that I've prepared for months to do, you know, one weekend, and then 
I don't do one again for a while. Uh, and these people will be ready, you know, on a moment's notice to play any number of solos with orchestra. I'm sure they have chamber pieces that they're ready to go with at any given moment. They can play a recital tomorrow and they are, and they do. And, uh, you know, for the most part, they have all that repertoire memorized too, which is just incredible. Um, so there's a whole skill set uh, apart from what, you know, uh, everyday orchestral musician like me does. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, actually. I mean, as you mentioned, they're not only memorizing concertos, they have many memorized at one point. I mean, most soloists are out traveling week to week in a new city in many different parts of the world. So just think about the, the life of a soloist. I mean, they're constantly on an airplane going somewhere, sometimes uh, across to the other side of the world, like I said, and having to stay in a hotel and eat on the road and all the all the difficulties that come with that, of course, and not feeling like you're ever home. But then to have all those concertos, you know, maybe it's five or six concertos at once uh, for a couple months in their mind and having to just walk out on stage and do it and then finding time to practice for all the other concertos they have coming up. To me, it always amazes me that a soloist can keep all that straight in their head. And actually, there's a funny um, story of, well, it's not, probably wasn't funny at the moment, but there was a, a pianist, I'm trying to remember her name, um, uh, I think it was, um, I'm looking it up here actually, Maria Pires, who thought that she was walking out on stage to play a Mozart piano concerto, speaking of Mozart, we were just talking about Mozart a little earlier. And she sat down uh, at the piano, and the orchestra started, and it was a different concerto, and it was a performance. I don't know why they didn't have a rehearsal right before it. I'm not sure exactly what led up to it, but the piece started, and she looked, of course, horrified at first, like, oh my God, I, I was expecting to play this concerto instead. And Ricardo Chailly, who was conducting, she got his attention, and he looked at her, and he said, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, because she had just played the concerto that they were doing, I guess, like a year before that or something. And so in that brief couple minutes of the orchestra introduction, she got it all back in her head and her heart and actually played a brilliant performance of the different Mozart piano concerto that she was not expecting to play. To me, that's like insane. I can't imagine doing that. You know, you're talking about the intangibles and like, you know, obviously anybody who we've talked about so far has an incredible musical gift but I think one of the intangibles that so many of these artists has is this um, passion for kind of sharing that gift, but sharing music and making it accessible and really um, just opening that up to to anyone who wants to experience it. And we've had some really tremendous artists come here and be very giving of their time and of their energy and of their talent um, not just on the stage. Uh, for example, I mean, Yo-Yo Ma was here. He's been here a handful of times. But one of the days that he was here last, he was here for three three concerts, a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday. And he knew he was going to have the whole day Saturday free because he, you know, we had rehearsed everything. We had performed on Friday. And he asked us to please book a few hours worth of... Um, places that he could visit and surprise people and perform for them. Um, so we went to the Ronald McDonald house and we went to the VA hospital and he played for patients on hospice, um, end of life care, you know, just in their rooms. Um, and he, he wanted to do it. He didn't want to waste a free day when he could be, you know, 
giving back to people. And I think that's one of the signs of, of a really great artist and obviously human being. That's a, that's a really good point, Stephanie. I, I had the privilege of going around that day and seeing him interact with, with people at all those different places around Kansas City. And it was really inspiring and just a, a beautiful day. I remember when we went to um, a cathedral for a, a soup kitchen at lunch, he was playing for all the, the people and, and many people, of course, probably some of them had no idea who he was at first. And then when um, uh, Father Turner introduced him, I remember one guy lost his mind because I think he speculated that it was Yo-Yo. And he stood up right when he said, and this is Yo-Yo Ma, he's a big cellist and worldwide known cellist. And he stood up and he said, no way, and screamed <laughs> it and was so excited. And then I made sure I went over to the guy. I'm like, you should go up and meet Yo-Yo. And he said, there's no way I can do that. There's no way. I said, he's a really nice guy. And so he finally got up the nerve to talk to him. And Yo-Yo, just watching Yo-Yo interact with this guy, what just summed up who he is. He's not only a brilliant soloist, but like you just said, he he's a, a brilliant person. And it's always inspiring when we have these great soloists, when they can take that time to connect with our community and communities all over the world. I, I just think it's super cool. There are several, actually. I mean, you know, we mentioned Joyce DiDonato, who's a hometown girl. She loves coming back to Kansas City. But I'm the work that she does, especially with young singers, too. I mean, she's a huge advocate of music education and um, she's done several master classes here and just watching her interact with young performers and, you know, really deliver like a message of hope and encouragement to these young performers who are really trying to make it. And um, she's very open about telling her her own story. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's the best. Yeah, watching her do a master class actually is like theater in and of itself. I mean, she's huh. she's so dramatic even when she's not necessarily intending to be dramatic in a theatrical sense. And she also uh, has done some incredible work uh, with inmates in, in prison as well. Uh, that's really amazing and a uh, venture that's, that's near and dear to my heart as well. She is, um, she is like Yo-Yo and so many others, so giving of herself and her talents. Uh, and that, that is absolutely a really important part of being a musician in general, but but uh, being a soloist gives you, you know, visibility uh, and a platform, and the ones who use that to best effect are are really uh, making an incredible contribution. You know, you talk about Joyce being a dramatic the last time she was here and she did a master class she was literally rolling around on the floor of the stage, <laughs> just rolling around trying to get. I don't even know what, but get something out of this student. Just, I think she was telling her to just loosen up. You got to, you know, you just have to let all your inhibitions go. Don't worry about what other people think. And she dropped to the floor and just started rolling around. So you never know what's going to happen. I remember that. You know, another uh, way to tell that you are a big name soloist, I think, is if you are known by one name. Of course, <laughs> in the pop world, we have people like Cher, Madonna, Prince, Gaga, uh, Sting, but we were supposed to have a soloist with us this week here at the Kansas City Symphony, Midori, who, of course, uh, goes by one name. But I, I, you think about some of these other people we've talked about, Yo-Yo. You say Yo-Yo, everyone knows who you're talking about. Pinky, Pinka Zuckerman, Manny, you know, Emmanuel Axe. Um, and I'm so delighted to welcome one of our favorite soloists here in Kansas City. Uh, he most recently performed Beethoven's Triple Concerto with us last season, along with uh, Mark Gibbs and Noah Geller. 
And he goes by two names, I think, his first and last name, Sean Chen. But if you had to pick one or the other, Sean, what would you prefer to be known by, Sean or Chen? You know, it's uh, kind of interesting because uh, Sean Chen is it's not quite a unique name. There's another Sean Chen. He's a, a comic book artist. I'm uh, Instagram friends with him, uh, or we follow each other. And so I see his work come up and it's really cool. And I always thought we should do a collab or something. Um, <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, uh, I I don't know. My my middle name is also pretty unique. It's Yao. So if I were to go by one name, maybe it would be that. But I, I think Sean Chen go. is uh, <laughs> is my preferred nomenclature. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, how Sean, how do you balance some of these things that we've been talking about? That we talked about the life of a soloist and going out on the road and staying in a different hotel. And I mean, you have a, a great life here in Kansas City too, teaching at UMKC and doing a lot of arranging and various other really neat things, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But how do you balance those things as a soloist, preparing many different concertos all at once? I think every soloist comes to a balance uh, that works for them themselves. Uh, and it depends, it, there's many factors. It depends on how fast you learn, how well you retain pieces. I mean, the story you told uh, about, you know, b- being caught by surprise of playing another concerto um, that you haven't touched for a year. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd be 100% able to pull that off, but, you know, <laughs> everyone has their their strengths and they, you need to find a routine that works for you. I think uh, one thing that is pretty common is that um, most Soloists don't practice what they have immediately coming up that much. That piece is already, you know, you already know you can play that piece. When I get to a venue uh, to play, you know, a concerto with orchestra, most of the time I'm practicing for the next thing or or two gigs down um, be, and just spending some time to make sure I, I, I got all my bases covered for the current engagement. But you always have to be one or two steps ahead, um, especially when you're asked to learn something you've never played before then it's like you got to plan, you know, uh, half a year out, a year out, because you never know when you have enough time to practice, especially because, you know, when you're traveling, a lot of times now that I, I have a family here in Kansas City, I don't want to get to an engagement, you know, two or three days ahead of time and just be st- stuck there in a hotel. And sometimes they won't even have, um, you know, they'll have some practice time, but they're not going to schedule, you know, five or six hours for you. That's just, it's just, it's not music school anymore. So you really have to be smart um, and, you know, uh, proactive in making sure you are prepared. As a uh, musician who wanders the halls uh, in between rehearsals, I can uh, personally vouch for the fact that whenever we hear pianists rehearsing in our little piano storage room, uh, off uh, off the main corridor, I'm always amazed at how much I hear from that room that is not whatever the program of the week is. Yeah, it's 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 very important to and and I think pianists most of all love to uh, read stuff and just you know play a bunch of different things even if they're never going to perform it. So I have a question actually because Mike talks about our piano storage room, right? So we have pianos obviously at the symphony hall. But when you travel places, um, it's not like you can just pack up your piano and you can take it with you. Uh, Like Mike could take his flute or, you know, somebody travels with a violin. And even when you're staying in a hotel, I would guess that there isn't usually a a piano in a hotel, right? So what is that like kind of navigating how you practice while you're there? Because you have to, you have to play. 
Yeah, but my teacher gave me a a nice pep talk about that once, and he said, "Meeting a new piano is like meeting a new person. You can't make it something they're not, so you have to work with it and bring out their best qualities." Um, and so, you know, it's a it's a curse and a blessing to be able to take your instrument around. I think because, uh, you know, my my wife's in the symphony; she plays violin. I know how fickle the instrument her instrument can be to different temperature changes. Uh, you know, traveling on the plane, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, w- when you, we meet a new piano, it's been sitting hopefully in that hall for a while. It's been, you know, going to be tuned, going to care for. So we don't actually have to worry about that, which is actually kind of nice. And uh, it's a challenge, and I think it's a fun challenge to adapt to whatever you're put in front of. It can be a very nice piano, a very easy to play piano. It can be、uh, very difficult to p- play piano, but sound very nice. So it, there's you you meet all sorts of instruments, and it's part of the job. Well, and kind of a follow up to that, then I have the question I have is, so I know here in Kansas City, the symphony owns two pianos. I think our hall owns another piano. So there are three grands there that we have soloists come in, and they can choose from those pianos. Is that the norm, like wherever you go, or is, are there some places you go and you, you got one piano and that's what you have to work with? Yeah, there's a, a large range of Uh, piano availabilities. Some places I've played at where I've had to ask Steinway if they would be willing to,、uh, you know, offer a piano or, or cover some costs of a piano.、Um, and other places I've played at, you know, you you always hear stories about the underbelly of Carnegie Hall and people just you know picking different pianos. I was in the、uh, National Concert Hall in Taiwan in Taipei, and in their basement they also had like seven different brands of of concert Steinways, you know, Yamahas, different Steinways. Uh, uh, different, different nine foot grands,、um, Yamaha, Steinway,、uh, Bersendorfer. You know, all, it was just kind of a like a toy house for a pianist. So、uh, it just really depends on、uh, on the situation. Have you ever、uh, gotten to a place and you look at the piano and you just say, "Oh God, how can I possibly perform in public on this?" I don't think there's been a situation where it's been that bad. I've obviously played on. Uh, uprights for for smaller, not for you know big concerts for either you know、uh, retirement homes or, or things like that. So that's okay. But、uh, usually with a、uh, concert hall, you you won't get that kind of piano. And also,、uh, any manager worth their salt will put a co- con- clause in the contract that the piano needs to be approved of beforehand, or or or,、um, or else there's going to be some issues here. <laughs> Sean, as a conductor, something that I get asked often is when、uh, you're accompanying a concerto as a conductor, who's really in charge? Is it the soloist or the conductor? What do you say? I know what I think about this, but what do you say about this? This is a trick question, Sean. Look out! Yes, actually,、uh, I feel like any performance can be distilled into chamber music. Actually, solo performance can be thought of as chamber music too. You you are playing with yourself. You're listening to the sounds you're creating on the piano, how they're spreading onto the hall. You know how big the hall is, what the reverb is like. Is it dry? Is it wet?、Um, what the projection of the piano is like? What the tone is like? And you have to respond and adjust to that because we were talking about different pianos having different qualities, and that's exactly the kind of thing that can change an in interpretation or change many technical things about a performance. And same thing, obviously, when you're playing actual chamber music, you're listening to each other and all that stuff. And as a soloist, when I play with Uh, with orchestras, I'm constantly listening to what what sounds are coming at me. Obviously, sitting there on stage sounds different than 
than in the audience, but but you try to imagine a little bit there too how it how it's gonna mix. Uh, and I have to watch the conductor. You know, certain things like pizzicatos. It always boggles my mind when the pianist isn't with the orchestra for pizzicatos because it's really easy. You just watch the concertmaster and be with them. They're the they're the closest violinist, and hopefully, you know, a good orchestra. Every the the whole violin section should be with the concertmaster, and so that's the point of contact. If there's a downbeat, a big pickup, we watch the watch the conductor. If there's a solo part. Then it's then it's different, but I think there's a lot of give and take. You know, you can't. The orchestra is like a train. Uh, we can, you can make it do stuff, but it takes time. You know, if you want to speed up, you can't just it, it, um, can't make it immediately go faster. And same thing, slowing down, all that kind of stuff. So you really have to know what you're dealing with and um, be flexible as a soloist. That's a good answer, Sean, because uh, I was going to say basically the same thing. The conductor, <laughs> yeah, sort of in charge. But I mean, obviously, it's the soloist. As a conductor, you try to accompany the soloist as much as humanly possible. But like you mentioned, there are moments, big chords that have to be together where you as a soloist are definitely watching the conductor and taking. And what I always love about it is that it rarely gets discussed. I mean, there might be a really tricky transition where you say, am I taking this from you or are you taking this from me? But for the most part, it just kind of spontaneously happens in the rehearsal process. And like you said, it's just like playing chamber music. And when we say that, if, if you're out there and you're like, what does that mean? It basically just means that think of how a string quartet would play or a small group of musicians that are that have no conductor and all they're using are their ears. And that's what we do as musicians all the time. Our ear is our number one tool for playing together and, and playing in the same style and everything else. One of the things that I always think is so hard, though, as you know, a person who plays mostly in orchestra, when I do play a, a concerto, not allowing myself to take more control over the performance and have more leadership in what the orchestra is doing and and reminding myself that I can do that differently because I'm a soloist is always a really hard headspace for me to put myself in because sitting in the orchestra, you know, yes, you're playing chamber music, you're listening to your colleagues. If you have a big solo from the orchestra, the orchestra will, will, you know, move to you a little bit and hopefully the conductor will do that. But if it's not your solo, if it's somebody else's solo, or if it's a big 2D passage, you just follow. And you have to make music, you know, within some very uh, well-defined guidelines that you don't get to choose. So uh, switching between those two things always makes it really um, clear to me, uh, you know, what good soloists are doing all the time and what they do naturally. Because for me to do that, I have to think really hard about it because I don't, I don't get to do it that way too often. Right. Okay. It's actually a hard balance. Um, I, so I've, I have some orchestral experience. I played in youth orchestra on the violin when I was in, in high school. So I, and you know, my wife's a violinist in the symphony. So I am very aware and uh, cognizant of, of being together with the orchestra. I mean, it, it bothers me when a soloist does not pay attention to who they're playing with a lot. And uh, so sometimes you know, it, it's hard to find the line where it's, okay, I need to, like you said, I need to take charge here. I need to do some dump something. I can't just follow follow the orchestra. Um, I think what's an interesting thing to think about is that even as an accompanist, uh, what you know, whether you're playing in orchestra or uh, as a soloist accompanying a, a instrumental solo in the orchestra, uh, you have a lot of influence on interpretation, even if you're just the carpet or the underlying rhythm or or all that thing. You musically have a lot of power, even if you're not, you know, 
explicitly taking charge by how you voice things, how you pace things, how you bring out certain notes. Even if it's in the background, you can, you know, uh, subliminally, I think, affect solos in a very positive way and in a chamber music kind of uh, way. So if I could, I just want to change gears a little bit for a minute. And um, something everyone should know about Sean, and I hope you're not embarrassed for me to say this, you shouldn't. Sean can play anything in the world by ear and does just for fun. I mean, not classical music necessarily, just anything that he hears, he could sit down at the piano and start playing. And this is, you know, this is impressive for anyone who, who just plays an instrument can only play one note at a time. I mean, I can play a melody by ear, you know, uh, with some facility, but he plays the melody, the harmonies, all the inner voices, everything. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how that skill is important in playing music that you know that you've prepared uh, and that you're not playing by ear. Well, before before Sean answers too, I think it's worth pointing out because I think there is a big there might be a perception that if you are a professional musician, that you can just naturally do that. Like it, that's absolutely not the case. <laughs> that is an incredibly rare talent. So now, <laughs> Sean, back to Mike's question. So I grew up listening to lots of 70s music because my dad was a big fan. Uh, so Elton John, Eric Clapton, James Taylor, all that all that good stuff. And he played the guitar. Uh, he plays the guitar still. Uh, I think the guitar is a really good instrument to learn about harmonies and just playing by ear as well. So I, I played a little guitar just fooling around. But in addition, I played on the piano with my dad. And so, you know, we had cheap music a little bit for, for some of those things. And a lot of it was just spending a lot of time at the piano, not practicing because I didn't want to practice, but I liked being at the piano and just fooling around. Um, and it wasn't just that kind of music. It was uh, video game music. It was Disney music. And the good thing about having the sheet music is if you have a good ear, you can actually see where the discrepancies are. You can play through the sheet music and the score and you, you, you go, wait, wait a second, that, that chord's not quite right. And then you can go back and listen to it and then try a different chord, say, mm, maybe that's closer, maybe that's not quite right. And you keep repeating that. And it's sort of like ear training by trial by error. And you really learn what chords sound like as a whole and not just with perfect pitch going, oh, there's a C, there's a B flat, there's a D, there's an F sharp. You know, what is that chord? I can, f I can almost see it on the keyboard. I can sometimes see it. I can feel how it sounds. And yes, I have perfect pitch. That helps. But a lot of these chord recognition and harmony recognition um, happens even if you don't have perfect pitch. If you have good relative pitch, like many jazz pianists do, they don't, they they won't have perfect pitch. But they can. You tell them what note you start on, they're in. And I think it's important. It's not easy to get that skill. I think it just takes a lot of time sitting at the piano and trial by error. And when you're a kid, you do have a lot of that time. When you're older, you know that you don't have that luxury of time. So in a way. Uh, I, th I would strongly recommend all music students to spend some time at their instrument, not practicing, just fooling around, seeing what sounds come out, what you can play from your favorite tunes, um, because you know, music does not exist in a vacuum. You can play one piece extremely well, but that's not, I don't think that's being involved. That's not being a musician. And being a musician is knowing lots of music, being able to hear how this influences the other, where you, you know, uh, uh, what the context is for, for certain music. So that's excellent advice for students. And we know that you are teaching piano at uh, UMKC 
the University of Missouri here in Kansas City at the conservatory. Um, are you still teaching right now where we're social distancing and not in the same place? Yes, we've moved all our uh, academic activities, well, I guess any activity at the university uh, to uh, Zoom, to remote remote lessons. Um, the whole campus is, is closed down. So we have to actually find out a, a way to do the recitals and all that stuff. But uh, yes, we've been using Zoom. I have a little setup here in my apartment to do remote teaching. And it's been it's very, very interesting. I've actually had experience with uh, remote lessons when I was doing competitions. Uh, I was, you know, away from my teacher and we actually did Skype lessons uh, during during the competition. And um, it never occurred to me how difficult it was to teach through it, uh, the internet. And what's difficult, in addition to the distance part of it, is also just the lack of control of the sound quality. And you have to, as a teacher, you have to listen to, you listen past that. You have to listen past the the poor quality of the audio and listen to the interpretation, the timing, um, different different ways of uh, getting the interpretation how you want. Because you, you're not there to physically talk about, you know, hand position and fingerings you can see some of that but it's a lot more uh, you have to be clever about how you approach your suggestions i think well okay so i actually i just remember this i saw this a friend of mine teaches at the university of iowa he teaches piano there he posted something on facebook that that was he was excited because one of his students was able to get one of the school's pianos in his apartment. And it made, it made me think, I mean, when you're a student pianist, it's not like you're going to have a piano in your dorm room. So how are these students practicing even? That's a, that's a good question. And I think a lot of universities around the country are, are trying to solve that problem. Luckily, we've had, um, we dis disassembled our piano lab with the Clavinovas, and we've given them to the students who had to stay in Kansas City. So the international students, um, a lot, of, all of the students who have family in the states, I think they've gone back to to be home there. They do other lessons and uh, classes from home, and so uh, we've managed to. Uh, the The dean was very proactive in making sure all of our students had uh, a piano to practice on, and so that's been uh, really fantastic for our students. Um, you know, nothing replaces a uh, physical acoustic piano, but um, for purposes of, of keeping your fingers and learning notes, um, that's a it's a great it's a great thing. That's awesome. So, look, we've had an incredible conversation here with our good friend Sean Chen, but the name of the podcast is Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, and you are our first uh, live guest on the podcast. But we've uh, we've had a guests featured composer uh, whom we've asked about their uh, drinking preferences and we uh, posited on the drinking preferences of Beethoven in our first episode. So we would like to know from you, Sean Chen, soloist, pianist extraordinaire, stand-up guy, what is your favorite beverage of choice? Well, when I was in college, I liked Long Island iced teas because they tasted <laughs> like iced teas. Yeah. I mean, they were strong as heck. And but, they did the job. Uh, they do the job. <laughs> now, I, I think if I were to go now, um, it would probably be you know, one of those featured drinks, if there's anything interesting on, on their mixed drinks, or a Moscow Mule, kind of just yeah. very, oh, very traditional. Good. Mule. Kind of, yeah. And 
Is there a particular place in Kansas City or anywhere else where you might like to enjoy a Moscow Mule or a specialty cocktail? Well, keep in mind that Sean and Betty have a, a well, not newborn anymore, but a very young child. So I, I understand yeah. if you don't have time to go anywhere. No, it's. I think it's true that uh, that we don't have time to go anywhere now. Um, although the ba- occasional babysitter is a good thing, but not right now with the shelter in place. No, we've been to, there's a bar called Monarch down near the plaza that we liked. Um, there was south of Truman we went, sought uh, a while ago. Um, honestly, we don't really go, oh, oh uh, Julep is kind of nice. So, but honestly, we don't really go out to, we, we never really went out to drink anyways. It was usually going out to eat. And then, you know, if, if you're going to get a drink um, with, with your meal, that's the way to do it. So, Well, eating is acceptable too. Sean Chen, we are so appreciative uh, that you've been here with us today. And it's just been so great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Sean. So uh, wrapping up here, as we've done each week, we'd like to recommend a couple of things for you to listen to, especially since you all can't uh, make it out to concerts right now, and we can't play them for you. And uh, this week we were supposed to have played Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 4, uh, so that's a piece I was thinking about, and it's a favorite of mine to play. It's got a great flute part. So I was actually listening uh, to different recordings, specifically uh, to the flute solo in the second movement, which is an excerpt that we often play for auditions. Uh, and, of course, I have my own ideas about how I like it to sound. And I really enjoyed this recording of Nicholas Harnoncourt with the Chamber Orchestra of Europe. It's on Spotify. And it's just a beautiful recording of the symphony uh, as a whole. And unfortunately, I don't know who the flute player is on that uh, CD, but but I just, I love the way they play it. So uh, I think you should have a listen to that when you get a chance. Awesome. So um, what you guys may or may not know is that I in a former life was actually a clarinetist, believe it or not. Mike knows because Mike and I went to college together and I actually played on Mike's junior recital. Stephanie did. It was my great honor. (laughs) Um, So since we're talking about soloists and concertos, um, I picked two of my favorite clarinet concertos. And fortunately for all of you, um, Sabina Meyer does an incredible Debussy Premier Rhapsody and Mozart concerto um, with Berlin on the same album, and it is spectacular playing all around. Nice. Well, I've been uh, checking out Sean's YouTube page a lot this week in preparation for our interview with him, and I have to say there's a lot of amazing performances on there of Sean, so definitely check that out. You can find it on YouTube. Um, But what also I, I found on there was an arrangement. Sean's also a really brilliant arranger, and he's done quite a few really good arrangements Um He's arranged Overture to Candide by Bernstein for piano. It's an incredible transcription, so check that out. And most recently, he did a really cool version, a violin duet version um, of Little Town. Is it Little? It's Little Town, yes, from Beauty and the Beast. And I think it's brilliant, so you must check that out. It's his wife, Betty, playing, as Sean mentioned, she's the first violinist in the Kansas City Symphony. And so she's actually playing both parts, and she sounds incredible, and it's a really cool arrangement. So definitely check out Sean's YouTube page. And also, um, right now, the Berlin Philharmonic's Digital Concert Hall is free, at least for another few weeks here, and they might extend it beyond that. There is an archive of many, many concerts, hundreds of concerts on there. And I most recently listened to an amazing performance 
of um, Bach's St. Matthew Passion, where it was fully acted out by the chorus and everyone. They had their parts memorized. It was unbelievable. So there's so many good things you can check out on the Berlin Phil's Digital Concert Hall as well. So we're really hopeful to be together and to be performing for you again. And when that happens, maybe you're going to be wondering, what do I wear when I go to a symphony? When am I supposed to clap? Do I show up fashionably late? Do they start on time? If you've never been to an orchestra concert or maybe you've just been to a few and you're not quite sure how it goes, tune in next week when Mike, Jason, and I talk about coming to the symphony.